<clears throat> Would you take your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13 will be our text this morning. As we come to these verses, they may be some of the most important verses in this, all of the Bible in terms of putting the Scriptures together. And so that we can understand the Scriptures in their totality. We oftentimes take verses in isolation from the book that they're contained in, or we take a book in isolation from the rest of Scriptures, and there's no verse that can stand on its own apart from the Scriptures. There's no book that stands apart from the Scriptures, but it's actually all working together because Scripture has one author, and that is God. And this morning, as we dive into covenant theology, we see that covenant and the theme of covenant is the structure of Scripture. You could say that covenant and the theme of covenant is the skeleton of Scripture. It's how God relates to His people. God has chosen to relate to His people through and by covenant. And we see that all of the various covenants that are in Scripture are flowing from an eternal covenant that God had made. We often call that the covenant of redemption. That is the eternal plan of God to save a people by sending His Son to die for them. As you look at the Old Testament, you see that the Old Testament is filled with covenantal language. There is reference to covenants. There's the picture of covenants even in Genesis as we look at the Garden of Eden. There's a covenantal structure that God has with Adam himself. And so covenant is that theme, that predominant skeleton, that structure of Scripture. And so how we put them together is actually crucial for how we understand our salvation, it's crucial for how we understand the Bible as a, as a whole. And as you are looking at the Old Testament and you ever wondered why certain things are there, you just simply have to see them in relationship to the covenants at that time. And everything in the Old Testament, every covenant in the Old Testament, is pointing forward and finds its realization in the New Testament, in the covenant in the New Testament, where in the New Testament we find a perfect, we find a final covenant, because in the New Testament is where we find our perfect and final mediator of the covenant. Meaning all of the covenantal language, all of the covenants you see, whether referenced directly or indirectly, all come to a final point. They were all a shadow and a type of what was to come. Think of your Bibles this way. You have the Old Testament and the New Testament. Think of it this way. You have the Old Covenant and you have the New Covenant. And the Old Covenant is pointing towards the New Covenant where it reaches its fullness and its climactic point. And so let us hear the word of God where we see God directs this. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second 
for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord, and I want us to see here, we see first in the text an imperfect covenant, we see a future covenant, we see a faultless covenant, and we see a final covenant, and we begin by looking at the description of an imperfect covenant in verse 7. You'll notice it begins with the word for. For, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now, this is connecting us to verse 6, and verse 6 is telling us that the new covenant is enacted on better promises. And so when we think of the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant, the New Covenant comes with better promises, meaning that the Old Covenant did not quite have the greatness of promises that the New Covenant had. And it makes the point that this Old Covenant, and again, remember, you're dividing your scriptures into Old Covenant, New Covenant, and how they relate to one another. It says that the better promises are coming with the new covenant. Why are there better promises coming with the new covenant? Because the first covenant had fault in it. To be faultless means that it's to be without reproach. It means it was the old covenant itself was not sufficient. And what was it not sufficient to do? It was not sufficient to bring salvation to a people. It was not sufficient to unite a people with a common bond of fellowship with God. It was sufficient to bind a people by law. It was sufficient to bind a people with an identity. But it was not sufficient to bind a people and unite a people into a fellowship with God. So therefore, it was not a Uh, It was not without fault. And specifically, you'll notice at the beginning of verse 8, it says, for he finds fault with them. And who is the them? The them are those of that old covenant, meaning that those that were part of that old covenant, he finds fault in them. What was it that he found fault with? Well, God gave the people a law. God gave people certain requirements. And it's not that the requirements or the law itself was bad 
or that they had faults in them themselves. It's just simply meaning this, is that it was impossible for Israel to fulfill and keep the law. So he found fault in them because they couldn't keep the law. They were not obedient. They could not be obedient. They could not fulfill the requirements of the law. In fact, it's impossible to fulfill the requirements of the law. When we look back on that old covenant community, when we look back on Israel, one thing that is very apparent when you read the Old Testament, as you're reading through it, you realize very quickly, not everyone that's part of Israel is saved. In fact, you get a few shining stars through the Old Testament, and those shining stars have some pretty dark spots as well. Even the best saints were not perfect and sinless. Abraham, the man of faith, who believed upon God and it was counted to him as righteous, did not have a righteousness of his own. Moses did not have a righteousness of his own. Moses could not keep the law. David, do we have to recount the deeds of David to know that David... The the high point of Israel's history was not able to keep the law. Even Daniel was not able to keep the law. Josiah implemented the law upon the people in the Old Covenant and saw massive reforms, but yet Zephaniah preaches during the time of Josiah's reforms saying that the people need to repent because they could not keep the law. God found fault within them because He gave them a law in this covenant and they were not able to keep it. The law itself did not bring salvation, because the Old Covenant didn't bring salvation. It actually brought death and disobedience, even for those who externally followed it. What do I mean by externally? Many of us can keep laws on the outside, but it's internally keeping of the law of the heart and the integrity and the uprightness of the heart is where we all fall short. One thing that we see in that old covenant is one could be part of the covenant. They could even follow the law to the best of their ability and be considered next to their neighbor an upright person, but still be unsaved. And so the very first key distinction that we see in the text that makes a point of the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and this is the distinction, you could be part of the Old Covenant and not saved, but you cannot be part of the New Covenant and not saved. Only the saved are part of the New Covenant. So if you are in Christ, you are part of that New Covenant. If you have not received Christ by faith, you're not in the new covenant. Only those that are saved are in the new covenant. In the old covenant, you could have both saved and unsaved. And this is why the new covenant is enacted on better promises. To be part of Israel, one had to be 
circumcised on the eighth day and they were brought in to the covenant community by birth. You're brought into the new covenant community by birth, but it's called a new birth. It's not a birth of natural, but rather a supernatural birth, which is why the covenant sign in the new covenant is baptism for those that have professed faith in Christ. That is the clear distinction between that old covenant and that new covenant. And to make this very point, God is going to give us Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And that is what's going to be quoted to point to this because Jeremiah most clearly points towards that new covenant clearer than anywhere else in the scriptures. But one thing that we have to see is that Jeremiah didn't simply just point towards the new covenant, but it's all the way back with Moses, where Moses said this in Deuteronomy 4.30, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you, in the latter days, that is speaking of a future time, you will return to the Lord your God and obey His voice. Moses was looking forward to a time when God's people would have a chance heart and would love his word and that they would follow it. We actually see the promise of the new covenant not just in Jeremiah, we see it in Moses, we see it all throughout the scriptures that a future covenant was predicted for the people to look forward to. So how was the Old Testament saints saved? By the blood of Christ and the new covenant just as you and I are. They looked forward to what Christ would bring in. You see that it is indeed a future covenant. It was not a covenant that was in actuality in the old covenant because it's stated as a future promise. You'll notice in verse 8 where the quote of Jeremiah 31 begins, where he says, Behold, the days are coming, which means the days are not yet here. There's coming a future day where this covenant will be, which means that covenant, that new covenant, that God promises salvation and that all that are part of it, it's not here yet. But it's coming is what Jeremiah was saying. Jeremiah was looking forward. And that has always been the expectation of the people of God in the Old Covenant was looking forward. They were always looking forward to the promised seed that would mediate, that would come. And so Jeremiah, as he's warning Israel, he says, Behold, the days are coming. There's something better in the future, but it's not here yet. And I want you to notice that as we read Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, it came through Jeremiah's mouth, but it's actually the words of Yahweh. It's the words of God. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is what God's message was to his old covenant people. There is coming a new covenant. It's interesting that it says... In the text, you'll notice in verse 8, it says, When I will establish a new covenant. When you look at the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, the Old Testament, 
It was, I will decree, I will make, which is, I will cut. That's the same uh, thing as a cut. To cut something would be the same words as a covenant. But when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament actually changes the word there from the Old Testament. And so let me just give you a very general uh, principle of biblical interpretation. When the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, the New Testament interpretation is what you go by. The New Testament infallibly interprets the Old Testament. And that's what we have taking place here. In the Greek, it changes from, I will decree this to be, or I will make this to, I will establish, which has the picture of something that's complete, that's something that is finished, something that is whole. Meaning that the Old Testament looked forward to something that God would do, but as the author of Hebrews looks back upon what Jeremiah prophesied, he is saying, God made this happen, and it is established, and it is full, it is whole, it is perfected, it is complete. So from the Old Testament, they look forward. When the author of Hebrews writes these words, he's saying this is something that God promised but is now here and established. The author of Hebrews' perspective is something that has taken place. So, in other words, we're, we're not looking forward to when Christ will bring in the new covenant. That's not something that will happen in the future for us. It's already established, meaning everyone that's part of that covenant is saved. The difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, again, to reiterate the point, it's no longer a mixed community of saved and unsaved. And to make that argument so clear, He lists these points, these realities that come with the new covenant. When I, God says, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, during the time of Jeremiah, the kingdoms were divided. Oftentimes at war with one another. So what is God promising here? He's promising that in the new covenant, there's going to be a unity. Now, you'll see that it says the house of Israel, the house of Judah. Does that just simply mean the reunification of Israel? No, that's not the picture. The picture is a unity of God's people brought in to a complete unity in the new covenant. It's not just speaking of just Israel. And here's why. You'll notice that Jeremiah, if you survey the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah references the coming new covenant many times, and oftentimes, like in Jeremiah 3, he says, and all nations shall gather to it. Isaiah says, and all nations shall flow to it. Speaking of the future, speaking of the new covenant. And so in the new covenant, when it has this picture of Israel and Judah reunited, think of what Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, is where the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. Jew and Gentile are together. And Paul also says in Ephesians that we have a unity that has been brought by Christ Paul calls that the mystery, which is the church, that Jew, Gentile, all people come together in unity. 
a mark of the church is unity. And why is a mark of the church unity? Because a mark of the new covenant is unity. In old, the old covenant, the unity was nothing more than a patriotic unity. Now, patriotism is important. And patriotism can link a group of people together, can it not? I remember over 20 years ago, when September 11th, that was the most united in my lifetime that I can recall our nation being. That didn't last long. A patriotic unity can be special and can be wonderful, but it actually cannot unite a people. What we're talking about in the New Covenant is beyond some sort of patriotic commonality that we have of having similar backgrounds. But what you have in the New, com in the new uh, Covenant is something that is supernatural. And it is the bond of unity that we have in Christ is brought about in the new covenant. Which means this. All that are in the new covenant are united by the Spirit of God dwelling in them. That's why the new covenant promises unity. Unity could not be promised to people that do not have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. But unity is a sure fact and a reality of those with the Spirit of God dwelling in them. And so we see in the New Covenant, there's a promised unity, which is a mark of the church. Notice what he says. It's not like, in verse 9, it's not like the previous covenant. It's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. You think about that past covenant. What happened in the Exodus? God made a covenant with the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. You notice the intimate language where God took them by the hand. But yet, what did they do while Moses was on the mount? They're making a golden calf. How about that for unity? Because Moses comes down and what does he do? The Levites go and kill them. And by the way, when we begin to understand the process of what's sometimes referred to as excommunication in Scripture, all that is to say is that we cannot trust that you're part of the covenant any longer because of your unrepentant sin. In the old covenant, you would have just been killed. Why were they disobedient even though the Lord took them by their hand? Because they were not saved. That's the fault that he finds in them. They did not love God. They did not love God's word. They did not know God. They were not united by the Spirit of God. That is why you see so many times you'll have one man of God, in the case of Deborah in Judges, a woman of God standing firmly following the Lord, being led by the Spirit of God, and they find opposition from their own people everywhere. Because they weren't saved. 
What we have to see is when you look at that old covenant, the old covenant was tied to a piece of land that was tied to a people, and that people was given that land, and that people was chosen for one purpose, to bring about the Messiah. You ever wonder why the genealogies are so important in Scripture in the Old Testament? That we sometimes get bogged down in, in the lands and all of these names, because it's pointing us to a line, the line of Judah through the line of David, that God will bring about his Messiah. And all that is promised in the new covenant, all that is looking forward, is realized in Christ. It was unrealized. You'll notice that there was covenantal stipulations in the Old Covenant. He says in verse 9, For they did not continue in my covenant. Meaning this is the covenant that was tied to land, that was tied to people, that was tied to the blessings and curses of God, was based upon obedience. If you're obedient to me, I will give you land. If you're obedient to me, I will give you these blessings. But what's the problem with that? Well, it says, they did not continue. But what did the people of say? What did the people of Israel continually say when they were given God's law? When you think about when they were given the law on Sinai, they told Moses, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Boy, aren't those famous last words? How often do you commit to something, just in your personal experience of life, where you're going to commit to something, and you're you're gung-ho for it, and you're going to accomplish, accomplish it, and then you realize you fall short of what you were initially excited about. Now apply that to God's moral standard. Apply that to God's ceremonial law. Now apply that to God's judicial law, where you hear it read to you, and you say, I'm going to do every single bit of God's law perfectly. If we can't even stay committed to a diet, how would we stay committed to every aspect of God's Word? We wouldn't. We wouldn't. That's why the text tells us they did not continue in the covenant. So what has happened? God says, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So when you look back on that old covenant, you look back on that old covenant that is rooted in law versus the new covenant rooted in oath, it can be rather desperate. How do I receive my blessings? Well, it's based upon how well I do. But there are better promises in the new covenant. And that's what we begin to see. Not only have we already seen unity, but we see that it's a faultless covenant, that there's better promises that come with it. And this starts to unfold in verses 10 through 12. And so what are these better promises? Well, whereas the old covenant put before the people a law to follow as a condition of life or death, the new covenant is not based upon your ability to keep it. It's not conditioned on your performance. It's not conditioned on how well you're able to keep God's law. The new covenant, God himself performs the conditions on our behalf. So here's the reality of the new covenant. In the old covenant, you're saved by works, so to speak, tied to land. The new covenant, you're saved by works, but you didn't do the works. 
God Himself did it in the person of Christ. Christ Himself fulfilled the covenant stipulations. Christ Himself fulfilled the covenant demands. Notice in verse 10 it says, For this is the covenant that I will make. And God is making this covenant, it says, with the house of Israel, after those days declares the Lord, speaking after the completion of this old covenant, I myself will fulfill the covenant stipulations. So if perfection is required, it infers that only a perfect being could fulfill the covenant requirements. None of us could fulfill the covenant requirements. And so what are the blessings of this? The blessings are obedience by a changed heart. The blessings are unity as a people of God. The blessings are a relationship with God. The blessings are this is a covenant community. The blessings are this is that we have forgiveness, that we have regeneration. What we see in this text, and I want you just to look at it, God says over and over, I will, I will, I will, I will do these things. The new covenant, rightly stated, is a covenant of grace, for all aspects of it are gracious, whereas the old covenant was not a covenant of grace. It contained aspects of grace, but it was not properly a covenant of grace for he found fault with those that were in it. Whereas if you're in the new covenant, God finds no fault in you because he knows, finds no fault in his son. And you're no longer defined by your righteousness, you're defined by his righteousness. So look at, the, look at the blessings of this. The first is obedience. It says this, I will put my law into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. And this is a a picture of what God will do where the law is now on the heart and it is on the mind. And you just simply have to ask, where did God put the law in the Old Covenant? Well, he tells us he put it on a stone. Put it on two tables and gave it to them there. But the, the New Covenant doesn't say that. The New Covenant actually says it's not going to be an externally given law, but it is going to be an inward given law. In fact, Ezekiel speaks of this same thing where he says in Ezekiel thirty six twenty six, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. So Ezekiel, looking forward to the new covenant, as Jeremiah is describing this law that will be on the heart, he says, I'm giving you a new heart. I'm giving you a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from the flesh and give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you. And here it is. Here's the blessing of the new covenant is that we walk obedient. Why? Because I will cause you to walk in my statutes to be careful to obey my rules. A direct promise of the new covenant is that the new covenant people of God are obedient to God, whereas the old covenant people of God, they had the law written upon stone and they were not obedient to God. Because God had not given them a new heart. God had not given them a new spirit. God had not written that so that they would follow God's law. This is why 
Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.3, speaking to the church of Corinth, and he says, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. And notice how he ties this to the new covenant where he says this, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So what is the death that Paul speaks of here that you receive from the letter? Well, just frankly, is that in the Old Covenant, they were required to obey, they were required to follow the law, and they fell. As a result, they lost their inheritance to the land. The law was written externally versus the New Covenant. The law is written internally. We don't look at the law and realize that we're dead. We look at the law now in the New Covenant and say we love it. Sam Rinehan says this in his book, The Mystery of Christ. He says, The New Covenant does not merely internalize the law as a path of grateful obedience for God's people, but it also provides the fuel that God's people need to obey it. In other words, it's not just a law that we look at and we try to conform to. God actually fills our gas tank with love for his word. You you ever read what David says in the Psalms, how I love your word? They're sweeter than honey. They're greater than riches to me. You ever wonder how David could say that? Because God had given him a heart that loved The Old Testament, in that Old Covenant, the people were actually commanded to circumcise their heart. But the problem with that, and that command for them to circumcise their heart, to have a new heart, is that they couldn't do it. They couldn't give themselves a new heart, nor can we. But God promised He Himself would do this. And He promises this all the way back in Deuteronomy. He says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So you see a law that says love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. The problem is you can't do it. But the promise of the new covenant is that God will give you a new heart and you will do it as a result. This is called being born again. This is why Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. And that word again, it can be literally translated from above. You must receive a supernatural rebirth. You must receive a new heart that God himself Gives you. And when you get that new heart, guess what happens as a result? You will love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, and soul. What is the mark of a Christian? Love for God. How does Jesus define it? Jesus says, If you love me, you'll have a lot of emotions about me. 
Jesus says, if you, if you love me, you'll feel good about me. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He doesn't state it as an option. He says, you will do this as a result of your love. Now, the promise of the new covenant is that we love Christ. Yes, we have a fallible love for Christ right now. None of us loves Christ as we ought to, but the direct promise of the new covenant is that God will write His law on upon our hearts and we will now love it. Rather than us trying to seek God and trying to come to God and try to obey God and work our way to heaven, rather He comes to us, changes us, and then we love His law So let me ask you, Christians sitting here this morning, do you love God's law? Do you love God's word? That it directs you? That it guides you? Because if we try to make a distinction between our love for Christ and our love for the law, we're making a distinction that Jesus doesn't make. Jesus actually says we will because of a result of what he has done. Now, we never rely upon our ability to keep it, because what do we know about our ability to keep it? We fall short in many ways. Read the, read, read the letter 1 John. Over and over again in 1 John says, we know because we do these things. But then he also says, but we all sin, and if anyone says he doesn't sin, he's a liar. And so the Christian life is this... This, this walking of where you have a love for God's Word, it's not just guilt when you, when you break it, but it's an actual true conviction that I've broken God's Word and I need to repent of that. There's another blessing other than obedience, and that's relation. Notice what it says after he will write the law into their minds and write them on his, their hearts. He says, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And that that people, that is speaking of an unbreakable relationship that God has with His people. That is the establishment that God has set aside a people for Himself, and that He is committed to them, and that He will hold them. This is why Christ promises, no one can take you from My hand, no one can take you from the Father's hand, because you're My people. It's unbreakable. I think the picture of this you, you see so clearly is that covenantal fulfillment in Revelation 22.4 where it says that this promise, they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. That is the mark of Christ is indelibly marked upon His people. It's no longer being a Christian in name because we know that on that day many will say, Lord, Lord, and Christ will say, I didn't know you. Rather, this is a people that have the indelible mark of Christ upon them. The promise of a new covenant is the assurance that we have relation with God. We also see that there's a covenant community that comes about with this in verse 11. 
says, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. So the covenant community is no longer defined by customs. The covenant community is no longer defined by traditions and uh, how we keep things is in the old covenant, but rather the, the covenant community is defined that by this one fact, they know the Lord. And, 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 and look at this key distinction. They shall not teach this. Well, what does that mean? Well, you go back to the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant people are described in these glorious words, heart of heart, rebellious, stubborn, stiff-necked. Meaning that they had hardened hearts. They did not know God. And so as a result, in the Old Covenant, those that did know God had to continually say to their neighbor, you must know God. They had to continually tell everyone that was part of the community, that was part of their covenant, no God, no God. But in the new covenant, if you're in the new covenant, you don't actually have to be told that. Because in the new covenant, there's no one in the new covenant that does not know God. Notice what John writes in 1 John 2.20. He says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. You don't have to be taught by your neighbor. You don't have to be taught by your brother anymore. Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. You are indwelt by the Spirit of God, and you have all knowledge. The new covenant, you don't have to call people to the Lord because they know the Lord. No one needs the exhortation. Know the Lord that's part of the new covenant. So what is envisioned here is a saved people. Now this does not mean that there's no teaching in the church. In fact, the author of Hebrews even addresses this. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. There's a clear idea of leadership and teaching even in the book of Hebrews. Verse 22 of chapter 13 of Hebrews tells us to bear with my word of exhortation. That is my teaching. This does not mean that there's not to be teaching in the church. This is why Christ equips the church with pastors, teachers, evangelists so that they can equip the people of God for the works of ministry. This is not talking about there's no teaching in the text of, or in the church. It's, speech, it's simply meaning this. If you're in the new covenant, I don't have to tell you know the Lord. Because if you're in the new covenant, what do you know? The Lord. You're in spirit, dwelt with the Spirit of God. And you know the Lord. And you think of another contrast to help us understand this. In the Old Covenant, who had access to God? Who had access to the writings? Well, it was the priest. That's why the distinction is that in the text is from the least of them to the greatest, they shall know the Lord. Consider what Jesus said for a second in, in John chapter 6 and verses 45. He says, it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. They will be all taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes 
has eternal life. Those that have believed have been taught by God. And so to reiterate the point that is throughout this, only the saved are part of the new covenant. And so if you're in Christ, I don't need to say to you, know the Lord. However, as a preacher, you'll notice that many times that I will call the congregation to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, why? Well, we're in a mixed group of people. I can't infallibly see your heart, nor can anyone else. And so it's proper to say, come to know the Lord. And we'll continually call people to come to know the Lord. But if you're in Christ, I don't need to tell you that. You already know Christ. You already know the Lord. Our great commission is to proclaim the gospel to those that are outside, that by God's grace they might be brought in. So what do we see here? We see that the blessings of the new covenant is that uh, unity of believers. We see that there's a uh, relationship, there's obedience, there's a covenant community that's brought about, but most beautifully, forgiveness is brought about. Notice verse 12. For I will... Be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Speaking of forgiveness that comes with the new covenant, if you're in the new covenant, you've been forgiven of your sins. This word merciful is not the regular word for mercy, but it's actually a word that's used for turning aside of God's wrath from the guilty through the forgiveness of sins. In Exodus, it sometimes will say that God relented and turned his wrath away from the people. That's, that's meaning he was merciful to them. It's related to that word that we find in the New Testament that sometimes we get hung up on, which is propitiation. And so this is speaking of being, God will be propitious towards you. Meaning that he is no longer angry His wrath and justice is no longer on you, but rather His grace and mercy is upon you. That's what it means that He is merciful. And what we see here is not only that there is a forgiveness towards their iniquities, it has been paid for, it has been atoned for, but look at this beauty of it. I will remember their sins no more. We know that God knows all things. God can't forget anything. What does that mean? God will no longer bring it to remembrance. God will no longer hold it to your account. But you've been forgiven. This is justification, whereby we are forgiven of our sins, and then we are positively given the righteousness of Christ. So this morning, if you're in Christ... If you have trusted in Christ, hear what God says to you. You are forgiven. And He no longer holds those sins against you, but rather they've been nailed to the cross. That's the promise of the new covenant. In the final covenant, you'll notice verse 13. And speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Is such a clear statement 
that when the new covenant enacted by Christ, by his blood, look at Luke chapter uh, 22, where he says that he has brought in the new covenant by his blood. Here what we see is it's accomplished fact. And the old covenant's gone. Now you remember the context of the book of Hebrews. The Hebrew people were a suffering people. They were facing difficult times. And as the New Testament applies these realities of the New Covenant, God's people, us right now, still suffer. And so we might, as the Hebrews ask, or even as the Hebrews think, well, when you look back at the promises of the Old Covenant, they were given land, they were given uh, fruitful wombs, their, their crops would always be blessing, they would have no enemies. Isn't that a better covenant? They were promised health by obedience. They were promised prosperity through their obedience. We might be tempted to think as the Hebrews, wasn't that actually better than us facing suffering right now? But what does this say? This says actually that the new covenant that we're in, in which we actually face suffering and trials and setbacks in this life, we're in a better position. Which means this, is that they are ours spiritually. But we're promised physically them in the future. So the encouragement for us today is the same as it has been for Christians throughout the church age. This is not our home. This is not our home. As Peter says, we are elect exiles. We're waiting for the perfection of the creation to come. We're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth that is our promised inheritance of a promised reality, even now spiritually, for those in the new covenant. This is our hope. It's a sure hope. Not one we can gain or merit, but one accomplished by Christ himself. And so if you are in Christ, you are the inheritor of the better promises because we have a perfect mediator that mediates a perfect and final covenant on our behalf. That is the better promises that we have in the new covenant. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are a God of mercy and grace. It's astounding that you would love a people that are rebellious and give us such wonderful promises that you would change our hearts that you would bring us into a community, that you would unite a people together with the common bond of your Spirit, that you would forgive us of our sins when we don't deserve it. How wonderful and beautiful is your new covenant, and how wonderful is the mediator, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Father, may we take comfort in this life now, knowing that we are the inheritors of your promises because Christ inherited them for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.